the sinner's prayer. We will be talking about its history and its biblical application. Let's begin with looking at some scripture. In Acts chapter 22, we'll read a rather lengthy portion of scripture from Acts chapter 22 to introduce our thoughts. There we find uh, the Apostle Paul's story, his own testimony of his conversion. Acts chapter 22, we'll begin reading with verse 1, and we'll read down through verse 24. Brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. And when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. Then he said, I indeed am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous toward God as you all are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness and all the council of the elders from whom I also received letters to the brethren and went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. Now it happened as I journeyed and came near Damascus about noon, suddenly a great light from heaven shone around about me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuted. And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Arise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. And since I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. Then a certain Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me. And he stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And that same hour I looked up at him. Then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I was in a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I am in, I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by, consenting to his death, and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then he said to me, Depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. And they listened to him until this word. Then they raised up their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. Then as they cried out and tore off their clothes and threw dust in the air, the commander ordered, them to be brought, ordered him to be brought into the barracks, that he should be examined under scourging, so that he might know why they shouted against him. The Apostle Paul was very bold in his declaration and in his testimony of his conversion, as well as his purpose for preaching the gospel, his purpose for being at the place where he was. This is the record of the Apostle Paul's imprisonment in Jerusalem. It was here that he eventually appealed to Caesar, and it was from here that he was transported to Rome at Rome's expense to give an account before Caesar 
of his actions. But first he testified to his, of his experience before his Jewish brethren. And we're using this grand story as a backdrop, if you will, to introduce our thoughts this morning. I was raised to pray a prayer, something like what's called the sinner's prayer. We exhorted folks in the denominations of their, to repent of their sins and to confess the Lord Jesus. But in the words of a popular evangelical preacher today, we do not make Jesus our Lord. He is Lord. We acknowledge him. Now our denominational friends do not do so badly to tell people to repent of their sins. Nor is it necessarily a bad thing to confess one's sin. Each action has its place in the origin and the scheme of redemption. The scriptures do teach that once a man believes that Jesus is the Son of God, he is then to confess that belief openly and publicly. And the scriptures teach that one must repent of their sins or turn away from their sins. But the confession that is to be made is to be made regarding the Son of God, the confession unto salvation, but the confession for sin or of sin is reserved and limited for the Christian. In Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10, the Apostle Paul writes saying, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with faith, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. If you notice what's missing there, there's no instruction, no direction, exhortation, order to confess our sins, not unto salvation. Again, the Apostle John writes in 1 John chapter 4, verse 2 and 3, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the, has come in the flesh is not God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist which you heard was coming and is now already in the world. Again, John writes in 2 John chapter 1 and verse 7, Many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as having come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. It seems to me that the New Testament is centered around the confession of our faith, our belief, our confidence that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh and that he is the Son of God. These three passages teach us all that the apostles ever taught about belief and confession unto salvation. There is no true theology that demands that we confess our sins uh, as a condition of salvation. However, the popular doctrine to call on the name of the Lord and the concept of the sinner's prayer are foreign to Scripture. They are not found in the Word of God, not even in principle. There is no true, true theology in them. Let us begin with a history of the sinner's prayer. The sinner's prayer, as we know it today, was invented by 20th century preachers as a quick and easy way to convert people. But its roots are much, much deeper and much, much older than just a few decades ago. People who, in the early ages of Christianity, as far back as Revelation chapter 2 and 3, followed the false doctrine that's called Gnosticism. They taught that baptism was not essential for salvation. 
These would be the Nicolaitans of Revelation chapter 2, verse 6, among other groups that are mentioned in those seven churches. By the time of the 16th and 17th centuries, Protestant theology had developed in opposition to Roman Catholicism. There was much good done by these reformers, but they laid the groundwork for a false and terrible heresy. These national denominations called the reformers formulated their own doctrines of salvation. They usually left off baptism as an important work in any way, shape, or form. Though some perverted the scriptural concept and purpose of baptism and included it not as necessary but as a testimony of what has already happened. Some of these formed what is called today mainline denominations or mainline Christianity. And some of these denominations are still present with us today. John Calvin from Switzerland established what's called today the Presbyterian Church. Martin Luther from Germany established what's called today the Lutheran Church. King Henry VIII established in England the Anglican or Episcopalian or Church of England. John Wesley, again in England, formed what is called the Methodist Church. In, times, in time, all of these began to preach and to teach baptism as an outward sign of an inward grace. They taught that a sinner must pray long and hard hours to repent and to be saved. Now, if we can fast forward to the 18th century, men as such as John Wesley and George Whitfield uh, were preaching, and what their preaching was attracting thousands from the slums in England and in Europe. They were joined in the United States by such men as Jonathan Edwards and uh, Thomas Asbury. These were leaders of preaching and leaders of theological thought in those days. They taught that there was a great need for adult confession for an adult confession experience. Let me say that again because I may have uh, got my tongue tangled. They taught that there was a great need for an adult confession experience. The experience that they sought, that they taught, was radical and it varied from person to person. A lesser-known preacher by the name of John Webb in the U.S. taught, and this is a quote from one of his writings, Here is a promise of union to Christ. In these words, I will come to him. If any sinner will but hear my voice and open the door and receive me by faith, I will come into his soul and unite with him and unite him with me and make him a living member of that mystical body of which I am the head. If you listen carefully, they're completely foreign to the scriptural concept of salvation. Fast forward again uh, to the 19th century. In 1801, in Cane Ridge, Kentucky, a several weeks long revival began. In this revival, people were known to bark like a dog roll over in the aisles, pass out. Uh, when they were saved, they would shout, they would run the aisles, the backs of the pews, and all kinds of crazy behavior. Certain evangelical preachers of the day took advantage of this and created an emotional stir that left thousands with strange notions of salvation. 
The real cause was not an outpouring of the Holy Spirit as they claimed. They thought that this was a second Pentecost or they claimed that this was a second Pentecost. But historians and scientists of the day who were there and studied what was actually going on have reported that there was a severe shortage of nutritious food and that there was hardly any clean water to be found and that these things led to this delirium. In fact, one man, a man by the name of J.V. Coombs, who was an eyewitness to these events, said, The appeals, the songs, the prayers, they drive many into a trance state. I can remember in my boyhood days seeing 10 or 20 people laying unconscious on the floor in the old country church. People called that conversion. Science knows it as mesmeric influence or self-hypnotism. It's sad that Christianity was compelled to bear the folly of such movements. In 1835, a man by the name of Charles G. Finney began to champion these unscriptural tactics. He became a preacher, a professor. He left his career in the law as an attorney and became a traveling revivalist. He established... Uh, what is even ex existent today, a college in Oberlin, Ohio, known as Oberlin College or Oberlin University, and he developed the method called the Mourner's Bench System. This is a system that is present in many denominations even today. Mr. Finney wrote in one of his many publications, the church has always felt it necessary to have something of this kind to answer this very purpose. In the days, listen, in the days of the apostles, baptism answered this purpose. The gospel was preached to pe the people, and then all those who were willing to be on the side of Christ were called out to be baptized. It held the place that the anxious seat, or mourner's bench, different terms for the same thing, does now as public manifestation of their determination to be a Christian. According to Mr. Finney, the mourner's bench replaced baptism. Maybe in our thought, not in Scripture. Go on to 1860. A man that we may be a little bit more familiar with by the name of D.L. Moody was converted and began to preach. He later founded Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, Illinois. He modified uh, Finney's mourner's bench system by creating the anxious seat and anxious room in which... Uh, Trained counselors were able to go and talk with people in private and teach them and lead them to a confession of sin and an invitation of Jesus into one's own heart. Mr. R.A. Torrey in 1899, a contemporary and a co-worker of D.L. Moody, modified Moody's system to include on-the-spot street conversions in the city of Chicago, New York City, and other places about the country. About the time that Mr. Moody and Mr. Torrey were at the highlight of their careers, a baseball player by the name of Billy Sunday was converted in the Pacific Garden Mission in Chicago. Sunday left his career in baseball to preach and was one of the first to successfully mix entertainment with preaching. In his crusades, he popularized the Finney Moody methods and added a bit of circus acting. After fire and brimstone methods, the picture of the slide that I have 
uh, was of him holding a chair that he was about to swing around his head or had just swung around his head, uh, and other uh, outlandish, humorous behavior. Um, his sermons were heavily moralistic. They had severe political overtones and uh, were something to watch, something to entertain and behold. He offered salvation to anyone who would pray a version of the sinner's prayer. Billy Sunday died in 1935 of cirrhosis of the liver. He left a vacuum which was filled with hundreds of imitators who helped crusades become the norm in modern uh, society. This paved the way for drastic changes in theology and in doctrinal preaching. Along came the men called Billy Graham and Bill Bright. By the 1940s, it was clear that Mr. Graham was the next big champion of evangelicalism. Graham employed a method uh, that he fine-tuned from Finney and from Moody and from Sunday and created the altar call system. He had counselors in his uh, crusades to guide the inquirers. Graham summed up everything from Friday, from Finney to Sunday and added respectability is what he did to this method. His method included a refined and precise protocol of music, trained counselors, and a speaking technique that was all geared to help men accept Christ as their Savior. Bill Bright developed the concept called the Four Spiritual Laws. This ended where the teacher of the four spiritual laws, whether he's on the doorstep, on the street corner, or in a, in a building or in a crusade, would lead the potential convert through the sinner's prayer. This was a method that was adopted and applied by Graham in his massive worldwide crusades. One example of the sinner's prayer, and there are thousands, if you just looked up the sinner's prayer, you can find many, many hundreds of copies or examples, says, Heavenly Father, I realize that I am a sinner and have broken your laws. I understand that my sin has separated me from you. I am sorry and I ask you to forgive me. I accept the fact that your son Jesus Christ died for me, was resurrected and is alive today, and hears my prayers. I now open my heart's door and invite Jesus in to become my Lord and Savior I give him control and ask, what, ask that he would rule and reign in my heart so that his perfect will would be accomplished in my life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. This is completely contrary to all biblical doctrine. There's nothing here that is found in the scripture that teaches one how to become a Christian. These men would go about the country and teach things and, and preach things. Receive Christ as your Savior. Trust Christ as your personal Savior. Pray clear through. Pray this prayer. Believe in your heart that you have been saved. And a whole international enterprise of publishers, universities, evangelistic associations were captivated by this method. I put captivated, but I think sometimes I should have put taken captive deceived by this method. And we've named just a very small group or very few uh, names, big names, in the massive amount of people who follow this and teach this method in the world today. 
James Kennedy's evangelism explosion, he highlighted and stressed the counselor training program that helped make uh, these systems an international success. And missionaries have been sent around the world teaching sinners prayer theology. Evangelicalism had the numbers and the money and the television, the presence of Graham and Kennedy. Any attempt to purport a different plan of salvation, if it's caught wind of in their circles, big names today would be uh, T.D. Jakes and John MacArthur. They're decried as cultic, if we've ever been called a cult in the Lord's church, and heretical. Today, most evangelicals, that's what they call themselves, are ignorant of the history of their practice. Many of the great church leaders of yesteryear confessed a lack of knowledge of church history, ancient history or modern regarding the church. These men who developed these philosophies were untrained and untaught, by and large, in anything resembling Bible doctrine. They were literally blind leaders of the blind, to quote, quote the Lord Jesus. C.S. Lewis once said that they were proponents of a great cataract of nonsense. These men should not be admired. They should not be studied or learned from. They were, and they are, blind leaders of the blind. And the apostle, or the, the evangelist Jude, the brother of our Lord, had something to say about them. Jude, verse 11 through 13. Woe to them! For they have gone in the way of Cain and have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are spots in your love feast. While they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves, they are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever where is the bible authority for such a great cataract of nonsense some have claimed that the apostle peter authorized it on the day of pentecost in acts chapter 2 and verse 21 when he quoted joel chapter 2 verse 32 acts chapter 2 verse 21 a quote from joel chapter 2 verse 32 says and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the lord shall be saved. Joel's message goes on and says, Joel 2, verse 32, For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. Now the claim that Acts chapter 2, verse 21 provides authority for the sinner's prayer is completely baseless. The call that is contemplated here is fulfilled when sinners surrender themselves to the terms of the gospel. In just a few verses, the Apostle Peter unequivocally equates forgiveness of sins with being saved and says plainly that this is done in baptism, not in prayer. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Then Peter said, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. To believe that a sinner may be justified from sin by simply praying the sinner's prayer as a substitute for obedience 
to the plan of salvation is to labor under a delusion that is completely void of biblical support. Is there any authority for the sinner's prayer? Some have claimed that the conversion of Cornelius gives us such authority. Let me be completely candid here. There is not one case of conversion in the book of Acts in which the outside of Christ sinner prayed for and received pardon from his past sins. Saul of Tarsus, who we introduced our lesson with, is in fact a demonstrable case to the contrary of such, quote, a cataract of nonsense. In fact, Cornelius is himself another case that is contrary to such a notion. The Apostle Paul, Saul as he was known at that time, prayed for three days and was ultimately instructed to arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Similarly, there is a sense in which the prayers of Cornelius was heard. Clearly, he did not receive pardon as a result. This is evidenced by the fact that the prayer was heard before the centurion ever met the Apostle Peter. Before he ever heard words from the Apostle Peter who was sent to him to hear, hear words whereby he may be saved. Acts chapter 11 verse 14. The story of Cornelius was beneficial for us to read and to examine carefully any time we're wanting to examine how to be saved or any question about our salvation. Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11. So how does one become a Christian today? I think these, this question can be best answered along with the question of what exactly has to happen. By Jesus and Nicodemus's interview, nighttime interview, found in John chapter 3. There the Lord Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 3, Truly, truly, I say unto you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 5, Jesus again says, Except one be born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Verse 7, you must be born again. Nicodemus was the ruler of the Jews. He came to Jesus at night and initiated this interview with a compliment to Jesus. It seems that Jesus ignored the compliment and went straight to the heart of the issue. He makes these three grand truth statements that we need to examine a little bit. Jesus hit the point hard with this good man. He pressed the issue home at each juncture of this conversation. So we ask again, what does it mean to be born again? How does it happen? There are three important phrases connected with a birth experience that are found in Jesus' statements here. There is a begetting, a bringing forth, and a state into which one enters as a result of that process. We understand this process. Jesus likened it to the birth process. In the human experience, there's the implementation of seed by the father, a delivery from the mother, and a family relationship that is subsequently enjoyed, in most cases, this relationship also has an inheritance 
privilege. Within this context, the Lord Jesus infers each of these three components mentioned in his speech. Spirit, water, and the kingdom. We confidently argue then that the Lord is affirming the following statements. One must be begotten by the Spirit. This is effected simply by the Word of God. The sacred message produces faith. Romans 10 verse 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God in an honest heart as we're taught in the parable of the seed and sower in Matthew chapter 13. Patient faith, or penitent faith rather, is generated then by the gospel which leads one to obey the law, the New Testament, its command to be baptized in water. This identifies one with Jesus' birth from the dead, his resurrection. In Romans chapter 6, verse 3 through 5, the Apostle Paul reasons and says, Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Again, the Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to whom, to him who loved us and washed us from our own sins, from our sins in his own blood. Number three, all who yield to the divine plan then become citizens of the kingdom of Christ or members of his church. Jesus talked about his church going to be built in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. I say to you that you're Peter, and on this rock I will build. My church. In Acts chapter 2, verse 47, we find him building the church at the very beginning. There we read, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. In John chapter 3 and verse 5, we've already mentioned this. Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Did you notice what was missing when we talked about the history and went through all those men and their works and things that they did and things that they taught? Never once mentioned baptism, did they? In fact, any time that those guys mentioned baptism, they're preaching against it as a necessity. They're preaching against it as anything having to do to relate to salvation rather than a testimony of it after the fact. A concept that is completely foreign to the scripture. They encourage their adherents to pray for salvation. To ask Jesus into their heart. Let's hear again from the words of Jesus himself. He said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God.
No prayer is mentioned here. No confession of sin is mentioned here. In John chapter 3, Jesus is referring to immersion. Baptism. The simple truth of the matter is this. The water that is alluded to in the, this context is a reference to the water of baptism. This is a necessary act of obedience to those who aspire to enter into the kingdom of heaven. This fact is evidenced by the following considerations. First of all, it is a recognized principle of biblical exegesis, interpretation, that words are to be viewed literally unless there are demands within the immediate context or even remote context which call for figurative meaning. There is nothing in John chapter 3 that would cause us to think that the water that Jesus is speaking of is referring to the embryonic fluid in the birth process. There is nothing in these verses that would require a symbolic interpretation of water. There is no necessity to attach an unusual meaning to the term unless one is born of water and of the Spirit. That's the immediate context. If we step back and look at the remote context in all of the New Testament, at no place in the New Testament where baptism our immersion in water is commanded, recommended, or taught. Is it referring to anything but immersion in water? The expression born of water is consistent with language employed in baptism and other portions of the New Testament. When one is born of water, he is buried with Christ through baptism into death. Romans 6 verse 4. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. Colossians 2 verse 12. Buried with him in baptism in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. The goal of the new birth is to place one in the kingdom, the church of the living God, the family of God. 